0: image of Jesus. We ask these things in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we thank you for in advance for doing it, Father. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. And while you're turning there, let me lay a little foundation for what we want to talk about this morning. There is in the history of the church uh, certain key events and key times, uh, really I should say key men, I guess. One of those was Martin Luther who brought about what's known as the Reformation because he saw one verse of scripture that the Holy Ghost opened his eyes to. The just shall live by faith. And it created a movement in the church away from ritual, away from works to true faith in Jesus. Shortly after, there was another man by the name of John Calvin. He was a French theologian. He died in uh, 1564, just... uh, eight or nine years after Martin Luther. And these men were tremendously devoted to God. They had given their lives in service to the Lord. And this man named John Calvin wrote extensively on his beliefs about God and the word and as a result it started another movement that was part of the Protestant Reformation that bears his name it's called Calvinism and the key thing about Calvinism the key point there are really five points that he identified in his doctrine but they all hinge on the same one really and that was the idea or the, the uh, concept of predestination. He went so far as to say that all events, everything that happens, is ordered of God. And if you look at the doctrine of predestination, which just simply means that God picks and chooses who will be saved and who will not be saved, the same thing's true in every area of, of life. He picks who will experience sickness and who will not and uh, and so forth. And in his the followers of Calvinism the Puritans were big on, on uh, predestination. The Puritans were the group where the American pilgrims came from. And if you look at the results of following Calvinist doctrine I'm not talking about present day results we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go but I'm talking about the early followers, the early proponents of predestinate, Calvinistic predestination you'll find that so many of these people leaders in the church and leaders in their particular areas of Puritan, Puritanism or, however, would be best the way to, the best way to say it. If you look at those people's lives, even on their deathbeds, they weren't sure that they were saved. Now, I'm certain that that wasn't the intent of Calvin when he proposed or promoted his doctrinal beliefs. But over and over in church history, you'll find that the proponents of Calvinism were never sure that they were the elect. Now Calvinism, and again when I talk about Calvinism, I'm not talking about the whole thing, but specifically predestination. John Calvin hung his predestination doctrine on two primary passages of Scripture. The first one's here in Ephesians chapter 1. Let's look at what it says. Starting in verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Why were we chosen? Verse 5, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved, or accepted in Christ, is what that means, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he has purposed in himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of time he might gather together in one all things in Christ both which are in heaven and which are on earth even in him in whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will You'll notice there are several times that the word predestination or predestined is, uh, is used in that verse. It's the same word that's translated predestined. And it literally means to foreordain or to preorder. Now from that, Calvin extrapolated his doctrine that God's in control of everything everything that happens is a a result of the hand of God everything that takes place God is doing it because he's all powerful they point back to the creation account how that God made the earth he created everything that's in the earth as proof of his unlimited ability and they Identify that the will of God is the key and only thing. Because whatever God's will is, since he's all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent, and so forth, whatever God wants is the way that it's going to be. And whatever he wants, whatever his will is, and when I say wants, I'm talking about his will whatever his will is he will accomplish according to his own purpose perhaps in mysterious ways they say but everything comes down to God's will the second passage of scripture that they hang their predestination doctrine on is in Romans chapter 8 if you want to turn there with me we'll start reading In verse twenty-eight Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, oh, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren moreover whom he did predestinate them he also called and whom he called them he also justified and whom he justified them he also glorified now from these passages of scripture upon which calvin's predestination doctrine hangs from there if you accept that point if you accept that doctrine to be true, that God is picking and, choosers winner, picking and choosing winners and losers in life. And obviously the ultimate win is to be chosen as one of the elect. Once you accept that, then it becomes real easy to judge everything in the Bible by the doctrine of predestination as Calvin outlined. Now there's nothing wrong with that. We all have a filter that we see the Word of God or see God Himself through. The Calvinists see everything through the idea, the notion, the belief that God's in control and He's directing the movements of man. I see everything through the prism of faith because of the doctrine of faith that Jesus explained. That the Holy Ghost through the Apostles taught us. That's the prism I see everything through. As a result I see healing on every page of the Bible. As a result I see the goodness of God and the blessings of God. Of, on every page of the Bible. So we all have a filter that we look through. We all have a filter through which we judge the word of God. And identify its relative. Uh, whether or not it is relative. Relative. To us and in our own personal lives. Now predestinate as I mentioned. As is used in the Bible. Does not have to mean that God is doing everything. Or that the hand of God is behind everything that's going on. For example. One of the problems with predestination. Is that you have to ignore certain scriptures. One of those in particular is found in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1, it talks about how that we should pray for leaders of the nations and all those that are in authority. That or so that we might lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. But then verse 4 tells us what God's position is. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 4 says, speaking of God, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now folks, how is it possible for it to be God's will for all men to be saved? Just ignore the coming to the knowledge of the truth part, for the time being at least. How is it possible for the will of God to be that all men should be saved? but end with the result that we know that the Bible tells us specifically that the road to hell is wide and open. Because if, it's, if everything hinges on just what God's will is, then that verse of Scripture, 1 Timothy 2.4, tells us that there will be no people going to hell. If the will of God for, is for all men to be saved, then it is then it would be impossible, according to Calvinistic doctrine. It would be impossible for anybody to break or overcome the will of God in their own lives and spend eternity in hell. What did Calvin do with with that scripture particularly? He didn't do anything with it. He left that completely alone as if it was not in the scripture. Now, present-day Calvinist doctrine has been modified a little bit. And so rather than the hardline stance that that Calvin took about God being in charge of everything and everything that happens is because God did it or didn't do it. Take your pick. But the modern day doctrine identifies that since God knows he's all knowing, he knows in advance who will be saved and who will not be saved then his picking and choosing does not violate the will of man. Now, if you can make sense out of that, come see me after church and help me. Romans chapter 8, we started with verse 28, but that's not where the context of those verses begin. Look back with me to verse 26. Well, actually, I think I'll start in verse 25. It says, but if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it? There are things that we don't see that the Bible says will be. And so we wait with patience for those things. But what do we do is we patiently wait. Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. Infirmities there means weakness. It does not mean sickness. It means weakness. What weakness is he talking about? Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. That's the weakness of our lives. The weakness of our lives is that we don't have all knowledge. We don't know what God's doing behind the scenes in somebody else's life. if we were able to see what is going on behind the scenes in other people's lives, we might be shocked at the degree to which God is trying to influence them and help them and bring them to the knowledge of the truth. But we don't know. So the Holy Spirit, Paul is telling us by the Holy Spirit that this is his work, at least one part of his work. He helps our infirmities. He helps us. In our lack of knowledge of how to pray in every situation. That doesn't mean we don't know how to pray in some situations. That doesn't mean we don't know anything about anything. But we rarely know everything about anything. So likewise the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. Because or for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. The word intercession is, is widely misunderstood in the Bible or among Christians I should say because intercession is a type of prayer but that's all that many Christians know it to be and so they think that intercession is just the praying of prayer but it's not. Intercession literally means joining two together joining two together the simplest example that I know to use is if somebody came to me and said hey I want you to introduce me to to one of the people in your congregation then I would go and make those introductions so that two people that were originally separated by a lack of relationship are now joined together because I made those introductions I joined two together is one well when the bible talks about intercession many times and certainly the most well-known scriptures that we have about intercession for example jesus is our intercessor what does that mean it says jesus is sitting at the right hand of the father making intercession for us what does that mean most people think that it means jesus is praying for us well folks if jesus is praying for us that means the work's not finished What need would Jesus have to pray for us when he's joined us to the unlimited ability and goodness and grace of God? The whole reason Jesus is seated at the right hand of God is because the work is finished. It's not still ongoing. So Jesus making intercession for us, seated at the right hand of the Father, can't be prayer. Well, then what is it? Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father as eternal proof that we've been redeemed he's the eternal proof his resurrection from death after having made the sacrifice of his own life for us the fact that God raised him from the dead it says Jesus was the firstborn among many brethren that means Jesus has the same born again experience that you and I have I know this is tough for some people But the only way that Jesus could be raised from the dead is if he was dead. Now, if physical death is the only price that he paid, if that was sufficient to satisfy the necessary claims of justice for Adam's original sin, then why did it take him three days to be raised up? Jesus was somewhere during the time between his death on the cross and his resurrection. Now, the where he is raises a lot of controversy in the church. It doesn't for me at all. Some people say that Jesus spent those three days in paradise. Well, paradise, what's also called Abraham's bosom, was the place for departed saints. It was a holding place, I think, and I'm not an an expert on Catholicism, but I think that's where they get their idea of purgatory. But folks, paradise or Abraham's bosom was a place for those who expected, who looked forward, the coming of the Messiah and the righteousness that it would bring. That's not the death Jesus died. The Bible says God made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin that we may be made the righteousness of God in him. That means Jesus had to die the death of the unrighteous. Not the death of the righteous. That puts Jesus in the lower parts of hell. For three days and nights. To pay the price. For sin and death. So when Jesus is raised again. And the Bible is. There's a, a verse of scripture that looks benign. But it's so full. Romans Chapter 4, the last verse of the chapter. I think it's verse 26. But anyway, it's the last verse of the chapter. It says, God raised Jesus from the dead when he justified us. King James reads, for our justification. But the preposition there is a word that means time, not cause. So apparently, there was a point in time, a moment in time, where Jesus had satisfied the claims of justice for all mankind and at that point the life of God came back in him who was spiritually dead he was made spiritually alive and that was the beginning of the resurrection he came back to the earth to get his body and he went to the throne room of heaven according to Hebrews chapter 9 to offer his holy blood as a sacrifice the eternal sacrifice for all of mankind so Jesus if the Bible's true Jesus had the same born-again experience that you have and I have that means he has the same righteous life of God that you have and I have I know that's blasphemous, blasphemous thinking in some people's estimation but that's the only way that the Bible could be true in the claims that it makes So, back to Romans chapter 8, likewise also the Spirit helpeth our infirmities, the weakness that we have of lack of knowledge. How does he do that? He does that by making intercession with us or for us. He does that not through prayer. He does that by joining us together with God and God's wisdom and God's omnipotence and everything that God knows. He gives to us the unknown knowledge. The unknown or the lack of knowledge that is a weakness. And he gives it to us. Now how does he give it to us? Does he give it to us through our minds? Does he come to us when you go to prayer and say, Now Father, I don't know how exactly to pray for this or to pray most effectively for this. But I thank you, Holy Spirit, for giving me knowledge. Does all of a sudden the the perfect knowledge of everything come to your mind? If it does, I need you to talk to me after church. Because <laughs> I, either I need to learn something from you or you need to learn something from me. Because that's not the way it works, is it? How does he give us what we lack to be able to co- cooperate with God to the fullest measure? Well, notice what it says. It says, the Spirit himself maketh intercession for us. He fills up our weakness with groanings which cannot be uttered now this is a difficult passage it was difficult for the translators I'm sure and I don't find fault with what they said or how they translated it but it doesn't bring us a whole lot of knowledge P.C. Nelson who was one of the foremost Greek scholars in his day said this he said it really means God talk He said in its simplest form, it means God talk. So he's talking about something vocal. This is referring to something vocal. So the Spirit himself makes intercession for us or fills up our weakness by giving us utterance. Now what utterance do we know and do we associate with the Holy Ghost? Well, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 4, it says they were all filled, talking about the 120 in the upper room. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So please notice that giving us utterance, the Holy Ghost giving us utterance, that's not a new concept. That's a big part of what Jesus sent the Holy Ghost to do for us to be our comforter, to be our counselor, to be our helper to be our intercessor, to be our strengthener, our standby and our advocate. So the Spirit helps our infirmities with groanings which cannot be uttered or utterance in tongues. And he that searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Again, it's talking about the intercession that's made Now, folks, please notice it's not the Holy Ghost praying. It's you and I praying. He gives us supernatural and powerful means to pray. But he's not the one doing the praying. We are. So the intercession that he makes is the utterance in other tongues. Paul goes on to say in the next verse, we just read it. He said, don't worry about you not understanding what's being said. Because God searches the hearts and he knows what's being said in the Holy Spirit. He knows what the tongues mean even though you and I won't. Well, if it's the Holy Ghost giving us utterance, since it's of God, the Holy Ghost is of God himself, then it has to be perfect. The utterance has to be perfect. The what we are saying, even though we are not aware of it mentally, or we may not have physical or natural knowledge of what we're saying. It has to be perfect because it's God giving us the utterance to do it. Now that sets up the context for verse 28. The context is after we pray in the Holy Spirit, after we pray with imperfect knowledge, the utterance of the Holy Spirit, Which has to be of the will of God. Which has to be only of the will of God. Following that. We know. That all things work together for good. To them that love God. And to them who are the called according to his purpose. See folks verse 28 can only be true if we act on verse 26. Calvinism pulls verse 28 out. And just says and we know that all things work together for good. Well, you know as well as I do that that verse standing alone is not the way that things go in the lives of most of the Christian world. How can we say that everything turns out for our good? And remember, the Calvinistic doctrine of predestination is that God's the one that's doing everything. If there's an earthquake, that's God. If there's a tornado or a hurricane, that's God. If there's stillness and peace that's God too. If your children get sick and die according to Calvinistic doctrine Calvinistic predestination doctrine somehow that's good. Now folks nobody has ever lost a child can find any good in the event at all. Nobody. Calvinistic predestination doctrine would say, well, sickness is used of God to teach us something. Folks, there is one lesson to learn from sickness. Let me tell you what it is so you don't have to experience it yourself. The lesson to learn from sickness is it's better to be well. That's it that's the only thing you're going to learn from sickness so the idea and like I said for predestination folks they see everything to the prism of predestination for example the Bible says the Lord orders our steps well to a Calvinist that means God's behind everything that takes place He'll lead you into whatever it is, whatever test, uh, temptation or trial. And we know that everybody faces those. We know that everybody, Jesus told us, that everybody was going to face the storms of life. Well, what did Jesus do? He told us how to overcome them. He told us to build our house on the rock of God's word, the knowledge of the truth. Now, folks, I would submit to you if it's God's will for you to go through temptation, tests and trials and Jesus told us how to overcome them, then Jesus has to be working contrary to the will of the Father, who under Calvinistic doctrine, predestination doctrine, sent these things on you in the first place. Think about the ministry of Jesus. That would mean that everybody that was sick in Jesus' ministry was sick because God did something to them, or brought something upon them, which would therefore mean that every time Jesus healed the sick, He has to be working not in concert with the will of God, but contrary to the will of God. Now, remember, God said of himself, Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, he said, I am God, I change not. So that means if it's ever the will of God for somebody to be sick, it always has to be the will of God for somebody to be sick. He never changes, that means his will can never change. Now, what about predestination? How does predestination work? Well, folks, very simply, the Bible doctrine of predestination is not that God's in control of everything. The Bible doctrine of predestination is that God has preordained or predestined for everybody in the world to be saved. That has to be because we know his will in 1 Timothy 2.4. God would have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So since he predestined everybody to be saved, to be born again, there's one thing that had to take place to bring that into being, and that is Jesus had to die for the sins of the world. Jesus did not just die for the sins of those who would be saved. He died for the sins of the world. Now, if everybody is if it's the will of God for everybody on the earth to be saved, why doesn't everybody get saved? Well, Jesus said, Whosoever will, let him come to me. And I'll enter his heart. The Bible says that it's through faith. That means believing. That means an active determination of the will, specifically believing that Jesus was raised from the dead and confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That's what brings you into salvation. That's what brings everybody into salvation. There's nobody that's ever been saved that didn't come in that way. It's the only way to come into the family of God. Well, what determines whether or not somebody will come into the family of God? Jesus died for their sins, no matter how vile or how evil they are, no matter what terrible things they have done in their lives. Jesus died for their sins. So everybody can be saved. What makes the determination on whether they will be saved? Your will. See, Psalm 138, verse 2 says, God has exalted His word above His name. What that means is His name, which represents His power, is not the deciding factor in your salvation. The deciding factor in your salvation is whether or not you will choose to act on the word of God to believe and receive what Jesus did. God has Limited his power on the earth. To what he said in his word that he will do. Now folks we could just simply go back to the beginning. The creation account in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. And find out what God's will is for mankind. Genesis 1 God said let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. And let them have dominion over the works of our hands. And over all the earth. God's plan, and remember, God never changes. If this was ever God's will, it has to always be his will. That's the only way we can have a consistent, faithful God that we can trust. Everything else just turns God into a a schizophrenic that you never know what he's going to do. But the will of God that was expressed for mankind originally was that man would be made an exact duplicate and copy of God himself. And he would have authority here on the earth. Psalm 8 tells us something about the creation of man. It says the angels are dumbfounded when God says let us make man our own image. Because we were not made a little lower than the angels. King James says that. But the word angels there means Elohim. It does not mean angels as we understand it. It means Elohim. It's a name for God himself. So God literally says, let us make man in our own image a little lower than ourselves, but greater than the angels themselves. The angels look upon this creation event and say, what in the world is going on? What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou hast crowned him with glory and the honor and made him a little lower than yourself. Folks, the Bible says Jesus told us that in the ages to come we'd judge the angels. You can't judge something you're not greater than. If we're ever supposed to, and Jesus made it pretty cl- plain that that's one of the works that God has in mind for his family. If that work is to judge the angels, then we have to be a greater creation than the angels. And that doesn't mean that we're more powerful than the angels. doesn't mean that we know more than the angels. It means this is the way that God made us to be. One of the things that kind of fascinates me is that medical science has identified that we don't use but one-tenth of our brain mental capacity. I think that's a little high number for a lot of people I know. (laughs) But nevertheless, medical science says we use one-tenth of our mental capacity. What do you think it's going to be like when we're raised up? When Jesus comes back for the church and we receive our redeemed bodies. You can't tell me that God made us to be able to use only one-tenth of our brain. I don't believe Adam did use one-tenth of his brain. And when he sinned, he didn't use his brain at all. (laughs) But whatever happened, uh, uh, and again, I'm assuming that medical science is right on this. I don't know how how you're going to confirm it one way or the other or disprove it. But if they're right, and we only use one-tenth of our mental abilities, that change had to have occurred when sin and death came on the scene. That change had to occur when Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden. Well, that has to be one of the things that's restored then. That makes the Scripture even more real to me. Where it says we shall see as we are seen and know as we are known. Now we can't build a doctrine off just one scripture. So there are some other things that we're going to need to look at. To identify if we're dividing the word rightly. That's what the Bible commissions us to do. To rightly divide the word of truth. So let's look at a couple of other scriptures, a couple of other places where we can gain some information about God and His plan and His purpose. Romans 2, verse 11 says, There is no respect of persons with God. Ephesians 6 says the same thing, and Colossians 3 says the same thing. So, Paul, if he was inspired by the Holy Ghost, is telling us clearly, and these are letters to the church, this isn't some Old Testament claim. These are letters to the church. He's telling us, he's identifying that God never treats anybody differently from somebody else. If God is no respecter of persons, that means he can't want one person to be healed and another person to be sick. That means he can't want one person to prosper financially and another person to be poverty stricken. God is no respecter of persons. It's part of the nature of God Himself that He never changes. He's always the same. James 1:17 tells us something about this too. It says, every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Well, if there's no variableness, that means God's constant. If there's no variableness, that means God never changes. If there is no variableness, that means the Old Testament claim that God made of himself, I am God, I change not, is absolutely true. Well, if God wants the same thing for everybody, and thank God he does, he wants everything Jesus paid for with his precious blood to be yours and mine. He not only wants us to be forgiven from our transgressions, And our iniquities but he wants us to take advantage of the fact that Jesus took stripes upon his back so that we through his stripes were healed he wants us to all accept the work that Jesus did the chastisement of our peace that word peace is the word shalom it means well being in every area doesn't mean just financially but it includes finances it means that God wants us to take advantage of the price that Jesus paid for our physical and material well-being. Otherwise, why did Jesus pay the price? Look with me in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Notice verse 19. This is a situation where the... uh, Children of Israel looked over over the promised land, sent 12 spies into the land of promise, but came back with a report of unbelief. Ten of them came back with a report of doubt and unbelief and said, we can't do it. People there are too strong. The the land is too great. It will swallow us up. Notice God's remedy for that. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. He said, I call heaven and earth to record against you this day that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. Now, folks, if God's ordering everybody's steps, if God's deciding what everybody does, why in the world would he tell us to choose life? This verse of Scripture would read, if, if Calvinist predestination is accurate and true, then this verse of Scripture would read, I call heaven and earth to record against you this day, that I have set before you life and death, But it doesn't matter what you want. I've picked life for some of you and death for others. You lucky ones rejoice. You unlucky ones mourn. But if Genesis 1.26 is true, where God made man in his own image, an exact duplicate in kind, for the purpose of man having authority here on the earth, then that would make sense why God tells man, choose life. He says, both are before you. Life and death, blessing and cursing. You can have it any way you want it. But then he gives us a hint. Life's better. Choose life. Choose life. Folks, if man doesn't have a choice, this verse of scripture would be completely Ridiculous to be included in in the, the Bible. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life that both thou and thy seed may live. I trust that you remember Numbers chapter 14. The story of when the 12 spies come back. And they identify that the land looks too great and the people look too strong for them to conquer it, them meaning the children of Israel to conquer it. The ten spies convince the congregation of Israel that the job is too great that God's not big enough to bring them into the promised land. So God tells Moses, "Say unto them, tell them." Numbers 14, 28, say unto them, As truly as I live, saith the Lord, as you have spoken in my ears, so will I do unto you. Now, we've hinted at this before, but I think this is a good place to bring it back up. And that is the creation account in Genesis tells us 10 different times where God said something and it came to be. He said, Let there be light, and there was light. He said, Let the waters be divided. The waters in heaven be divided from the waters on the earth, and it was. He said, let the dry land appear, and it did. Over and over again, 10 different times, God said, let something be. He spoke something into existence. And then he makes man. And he says, let man be in our own image and after our own likeness. Why do the 10 times, why are there 10 times in the book of Genesis? It, could, it would be ju- a whole lot easier and just as effective, perhaps, for God, the the Bible account, the creation account, to say, and God said, let there be light, let there be a sun, let there be a moon, let there be stars, and it was. Why does it drag it out into 10 different things? Because it's showing us what we, man, should do to imitate our Heavenly Father since we were made in His image. In other words, it's telling us, here's how man exercises authority. That's the purpose that he was made for. Let man have authority over the works of our hands. Well, how is man supposed to exercise authority? Same way God did. We're made in his image. We were made an exact copy and duplicate of himself. So if he created the world by by words, by speaking words, then we are to exercise our authority through the spoken word. Now, man seemed to have forgotten that, after the fall Israel doesn't seem to understand that but God establishes an eternal law did you notice in verse 28 it started off with as truly as I live that phrase is not in the Bible but a couple of times and it has meaning God's trying to communicate something with it he's not just adding unnecessary words so when he says as truly as I live it's important for us to stop and recognize how does God live because he says something is going to come to pass that's as true as his life well what is God's life like there's two things it's unchanging and it's eternal so when God says as truly as I live he's saying I'm establishing an eternal and unchanging law what is the eternal and unchanging law that God established He didn't establish it at that point in time. He established it when he created the earth. I will do unto you as you have spoken in my ears. I will do unto you as you have spoken in my ears. In other words, you get what you say. You get what you say. Now, folks, if God does not have... I'm sorry, let me say that again. I'll say it right this time. If man does not have the ability to choose, what difference would his words make? If God's doing everything like Calvinistic predestination believers say that he does, what would it be what difference would it make what man says? Because according to their their doctrine and their beliefs, God's going to do whatever he wants to do just because he wants to do it. So what difference would it make? Who says what? But we've already identified that your words determine whether or not you'll be born again. Romans chapter 10, verse 8. For by grace are you saved through faith, not not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. That whosoever shall believe in his heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess with his mouth that Jesus is Lord, he shall be saved. It doesn't say he might be saved. It says he shall be saved. So salvation is dependent on two things. It's dependent on what you believe in your heart and what you say with your mouth. And God says that's part of the eternal law that he created a long, long, long time ago. As truly as I live, saith the Lord, I will do unto you as you have spoken in my ears. I will do unto you as you have spoken in my ears. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. Does this make any sense at all, folks? 1 John chapter 3. Notice verse 14. John said, we know. Everybody say no. no. We know that we passed from death unto life. Now, folks, remember what I referred to earlier. And I see this as a great tragedy. I'm not here to pick a bone or fight with anybody. I'm just after the truth. I don't care who comes up with the knowledge of the truth first or how we learn it. I just want the truth. It breaks my heart to hear reports or read things like I shared with you about the early proponents of Calvinistic predestination. How that on their deathbeds, after committing their lives to the Lord and serving him with all of the strength of their own might. And please realize, if you're not sure you're born again, that's all you've got to work with. Just your own personal strength. But after expending their lives and their personal strength, in an attempt at least, to serve God, they didn't know that they would be saved. They didn't know. Folks, the Bible wants you to know. Now let me go just a little bit further and say this. If you don't know whether or not you're born again, you can't have a clue about who God is. Because the Bible is certainly not reliable. Or if it is reliable, it's only reliable under those few people that have been chosen and the elect. But you don't know if you're part of that group. So I guess the thing that I'm trying to get around to saying is this. Calvinistic predestination robs you of the knowledge of who God is and how he operates in, in relation to mankind. But apparently the Holy Ghost didn't deal that way. The Holy Ghost inspired John to say, we know. Not we hope so, not we think so, not maybe so. He said, we know that we've passed from death to life. Because of the love of God that we have for the brethren. Romans 5, 5 says the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost when we're born again. So that fits with what John is saying. John is saying we know because of the supernatural love that's deposited within us. The love that we have for one another. We know that that love is the proof that we've been born again. Because it's certainly not of us. But it's of God himself. We know that we pass from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Look with me just a couple of pages over to 1 John five thirteen. John says again by the Holy Ghost. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. That you may know that you have eternal life. Now folks you have to understand. These are scriptures that had to be ignored and still have to be ignored by those that hold the doctrine the Calvinistic doctrine of predestination because according to the, the Calvinistic doctrine of predestination you cannot know that you're elect you just have to find out after you die I guess maybe the indication is whether or not you go up or whether you go down we know These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God and this is the confidence that we have in Him. You can't have this confidence if you don't know you've been made part of God's family. This is the confidence that we have in Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us and if or since we know that He hears us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we've desired of Him. In other words, John is saying by the Holy Ghost that our relationship with God, the knowledge of having been born again by accepting the sacrifice of Jesus and the shedding of his blood, we know that we have eternal life and that brings us into a place where we know God is our Father, where we know that God cares for us, where we know that God is working on our behalf and we have a prayer life that never fails. all those things are robbed from you if you believe in the predestination stuff of Calvin's, his original belief, his original doctrine. Now, one last scripture, and I'll close with this. Turn with me to Psalm 37. Psalm 37. It's become real popular in this modern day, um, at least in some circles, to say that God's in control. Don't worry God's in control. Well, based on some things that we've seen in the scripture, we're going to have to identify what do we mean that God's in control. If we mean that God is causing everything that happens in the earth to happen, that can't be right. We've got too many pages to tear out of our Bibles to make it worthwhile to even keep them. Notice verse 4. Psalm 37 verse 4 it says delight yourself also in the Lord. This word delight means to be soft or pliable. Delight thyself also in the Lord and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. A lot of people read the scripture by saying if you get happy enough about God. Then God will give you the things that you want. But that's not what it means. It means that God places his desires in you when you yield your will to his. When you yield your will to his, he gives you his desires. He places his desires in your heart. Notice verse 5. It says, commit your way unto the Lord. That's talking about lifestyle. And remember, the just shall live by faith. That's the lifestyle that God's interested in. He's not interested in the lifestyle of where you work and work and work and work and work and finally get to the place where you never sin. Because folks, I don't know if you'll ever reach that point. I'm not going to say that we can't reach that point because that might discourage people from trying. But I know that we'll never attain perfection as long as we've got these sin-tainted bodies or bodies that have experienced sin in the flesh. So when he says commit your way into the Lord, he's talking about a spiritual heart place. He's talking about living according to his word. It's faith that is necessary to please God. Not good works. It's faith that pleases him. So he says, delight yourself also in the Lord. Yield yourself to his desire his will. And he'll place his desires on the inside of you. Commit your way unto the Lord. Live by faith. Walk in love. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. Now in this context, we can say God is in control. And not be talking about the predestination stuff. For example, I've yielded my life to the Lord. I'm expecting Him to order my steps. I expect Him to lead me by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that every child of God has a right, I believe also a responsibility, to be led by the Spirit of God. And as we commit ourselves to Him, as we yield ourselves to Him, we can expect Him to show us the good things that he has prepared for us we can expect him to lead us into the blessings that were obtained by Jesus and his sacrifice we can expect him to lead us we can expect the Holy Ghost to lead us into our healing we can expect him to lead us into the financial and material blessings I tell the Lord all the time Lord I'll do whatever you want me to do I'll go wherever you want me to go you make it clear to me and I'll do it in that sense I can say God's in control Because whatever he's going to reveal to me or whatever he shows to me, I'm going to jump on board with that. But I'm not sure all Christians are at that place. So there is a place that we can say God is in control of our lives. That doesn't mean he usurps our will, which he never does. The Holy Ghost is a gentleman. He'll lead you. He won't force you. But thank God he leads us. Thank God he will order ourselves. He will show us the way to go. He will show us what to do in the middle of adversity. He will bring his word to our remembrance. It's all a part of what Jesus said the Holy Ghost would do in the church age. He'll bring the truth of the word of God to our understanding. So that we can act on it and and overcome the, the, the trouble, the situations that we're in. And walk in victory. So in that sense, can we say that God's in control? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean everything that happens happens because God did it. Or that God wants us somehow to abdicate our responsibility to choose the things of God first and foremost. How many of you know you have eternal life? It's good to know, isn't it? I feel so sorry for people that struggle over that. I feel so bad for people. That if they just simply accept what the Bible says is ours. Then they'd gain confidence. In who God is and how good he's been to us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father we thank you. That you are God and you change not. We thank you that we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. We thank you for all the things that Jesus purchased for us with his own precious blood. Father, it's just so good to know you. To know that you only want our good. To know that you have a plan for our lives. And you will influence us and lead us by the Holy Spirit into that perfect plan you have. But, Father, we also know and we rejoice over the fact that you have given us authority here on the earth. We rejoice in the fact that the devil is under our feet because of the work of Jesus. We rejoice in the knowledge that the power of the name of Jesus and the power in your word is greater than anything and everything the devil can do. We reaffirm, Father, that we yield our will to yours. Place your desires on the inside of us. We'll act on your word and see those things come to pass. Thank you for the authority that we have as children of the Most High God, the Creator of heaven and earth, and the Deliverer from all of our enemies. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand. Before we go, let's lift our hands and thank God for being so good to us. Father, you could have made the plan of redemption anything you wanted it to be. You could have dealt with us any way you wanted to. But you dealt with us honestly, with integrity, And you've given us authority here on this earth. We love you, Father. We thank you for being so good to us. And everybody that agrees with that, say amen. 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 God bless you. Have a great day. Come back and be with us tonight for Healing School if you can.